Please open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, if you would. We are rapidly drawing close to the end of Matthew's gospel. Some of you breathe a great sigh of relief. Um, Some of you just long for more, I understand, probably not many of you, but by the middle of September, we'll close out Matthew's gospel. Uh, And we are going through the final week in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and we are really unpacking the most pivotal events in human history up to this point. Jesus was condemned at a sham overnight trial. He was rejected by Peter. He was rejected by Judas. And that's kind of what we looked at last week, these two pictures of rejection and remorse. Peter, a disciple of Christ, someone who promised to stay with him to the end, even to the death, uh, was confronted by the most unlikely, the most unauthoritative of sources, a slave girl. And yet he denies Jesus. And as the crowd kind of builds around him, as the recognition grows, eventually the denial comes with swearing and with an oath, I do not know the man. And as his third denial leaves his lips, the rooster crows, Jesus meets Peter's eye in that early morning darkness, and Peter is broken. The recognition that he has just become an utter spiritual failure, in a sense. And the last mention of his name is Peter running into the darkness, weeping, it's a sobering scene. And then after a brief transition at the first couple of verses of 27, we were shown the end of the story, the narrative of Judas. He too recognized that something was wrong, that he had betrayed innocent blood, and he tries to give the money back, but the religious leaders want nothing to do with it at this point. They recognize that it is on him, and they leave it to him to deal with, and in desperation, he throws the money back into the temple, and goes and hangs himself. He's a man condemned by the law. He's a man condemned by his own conscience, and ultimately he's a man condemned before God for rejecting and rebelling against the Son of God. It's a sobering reality. And in this remarkable display of hypocrisy, the religious leaders won't even put uh, the the money into the temple treasury. They recognize that it's blood money, so they buy a field to bury strangers in. And you have these two stories that are so similar in so many ways. Two disciples, two men who were told that they would fail, two men who recognized that they were failures, that they had been wrong, but two very, very different ends to those stories. Peter is restored. He accomplishes the ministry that Christ has given him. Judas, there is no redemption arc in his story. There's no happy ending. There's sorrow, and then there's death, and that's it. And then there's the anticipation of judgment. And we wonder why. Why is there this tension? Why is there the difference? Because it certainly isn't because Peter is somehow made of better stuff than Judas. A stronger moral fiber. Peter is not more intelligent. Peter is not more naturally, spiritually inclined. The only difference is that Peter belongs to Christ. And the great hope of every believer is that the security of our salvation does not rest in the power of our obedience. The security in my salvation does not rest in my conviction to remain true to Christ. security of our salvation rests in the fact that Christ holds his sheep and that he doesn't lose one. Now, does God call us to be faithful? Absolutely. Does God discipline us when we sin? Absolutely he does. And it's an act of love when he does. Are there those who certainly appear to be saved, but ultimately prove that they were never of the faith? Absolutely there are. John even talks about that in his letters. But what a great comfort it is to know that for the believer, our eternal security is a reality because our inheritance is secured by the one who gave it to us in the first place. 
Today we're going to move back into the legal proceedings of the trial of Jesus Christ. And we're going to move from the Jewish phase before Annas and Caiaphas. And now we're moving into the Gentile phase before, before Pilate. And uh, what this narrative hinges on is the idea of an exchange, a trade that is going to be made. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to read the first portion of our passage today, verse 11 through 14. Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. This is what God's word says. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that in a very real way, every time we encounter your word, we walk away amazed. Uh, Amazed at the fact that the supreme, holy, infinite God of all creation made himself known to us, not just through the marvel of your creation that talks of your power and your divine nature, but through your word that speaks of your law, that talks of our failure and falling into sin, and that speaks of the redemption that we have through Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come to familiar passages, difficult passages, but familiar passages, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things from your word. Show us the truth. And Lord, I pray that you would do the work that only the Holy Spirit can do, and that is to empower us to live in obedience. Uh, Don't let us be people that collect truths in our mind. Lord, let us be a people that are so changed by the truth of your word that it's reflected in our lives. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are worth all of our obedience, no matter the cost. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We've talked about it before. What you consider valuable impacts the way that you live. What you consider worthy determines how you order your life. From baseball cards or beanie babies when you're young, or maybe not so young, to the way that your life is structured when you're older, every uh, decision that you make is a declaration of what you hold to be valuable. At some point, you determine whether the price of gas is worth going on the road trip. You make that evaluation. At some point, you determine whether the overtime at work is worth the time that you spend away from your family, and you make that evaluation. At some point, you all determined that for some reason it was worth getting up on a Sunday morning and coming to gather together with fellow believers, and that this was more important than other things that might be entertaining or relaxing or compelling. And at a hundred different points during this week, you and I are going to walk into situations and we are going to be faced with a choice and an evaluation. Is obedience worth it? Is the cost of following Christ, is the cost of pursuing Christ worth whatever the trade-off might be. As we come into Matthew 27, we are in this continued evaluation of Jesus Christ. This judgment that men are making that determine whether he's guilty or innocent, whether he's dangerous or not a threat. Is he worth more than today, a known criminal? Is truth worth the same as justice. 
And these questions, again, move us back to, first of all, the trial of Jesus. And that's where we'll start today, the next phase of the trial of Jesus. This time it's not in front of religious leaders. And this time it's in front of a man named Pilate. Um, so we started, remember, in chapter 27, verse 1 and 2, talking about that movement from the final stage of the Jewish trial. And now they've bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. So by the time we get to verse 11, Jesus standing before the governor, we know that his name is Pilate, but we have to understand, again, why they do that. There's a question of authority here. The Jewish religious leaders have authority over the lives of the people. They are looked to as religious authorities, as civil authorities, as moral authorities, but their authority is limited. Uh, They are a conquered people. They are under the thumb and the authority of Rome, and they cannot do what they want to do. They can condemn Jesus, but they cannot put him to death. They don't have the authority to kill him on their own. So they bring him to the governor, who does have the authority to do that, and the governor at this time is a man named Pilate. And all of us kind of have a picture of Pilate in our mind. He's a common enough biblical character that we say Pilate, we think of something, and maybe that's filled in with some details, maybe not. What we know historically is that Pilate was in this position in Judea for about 10 years, roughly from AD 26 to AD 36, and it did not go well for him. Pilate was not a loved man. Um, Pilate was uh, boisterous in his support of Rome, And from the day that he entered into Judea, he began making enemies. Where other people before him had been at least moderately careful about how they treated the Jews and their religious sympathies, Pilate was not. Pilate would take money from the temple treasury for some building projects. That did not go well. Pilate would set up monuments that the Jews considered idolatrous. That did not go well. So poorly, in fact, that the Jews send a delegation to Caesar to complain about Pilate. And remember, if you are Rome, ruling over the majority of the known world, what you want more than anything is peace around the empire because wars cost time and money and people. And if you have provinces that are complaining about their rulers, it's easier to replace the ruler than it is to go reconquer a province. And eventually that's what happened. Pilate is removed from his position. He's exiled to Gaul, and he ends up taking his own life in exile. It is not a happy story, but Pilate is a man under warning, basically, at this point. He's been threatened, and he will eventually be removed, and that Understanding that little bit of kind of a historical glimpse helps us understand why the trial unfolds the way it does and why maybe there's not a stronger response than there is. Because now that we know a little bit about Pilate, let's move to the accusation that's brought against Jesus. From the authority to the accusation, look again at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And so Pilate asks this very political question. In his mind, it's political. There's no theological implication in what Pilate is saying here. He doesn't care. And what Matthew gives us here is kind of a snapshot of a longer narrative. And I want you to turn with me to John chapter 18. And you're going to keep a finger in John and a finger in Matthew because we're going to go back and forth for a minute. John chapter 18, the parallel account. And in verse 28, we read this. John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. And they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but they could eat the Passover. Now, you got to stop right there. And again, that should probably just make us shake our head with the irony and the bitterness of their hypocrisy. They are in the process of condemning an innocent man to death. They are in the process of handing over the very Son of God to the Gentiles who will kill him. 
but they don't want to go in the governor's house because his gentileness might get on them and they wouldn't be able to eat the Passover feast. Do you see how just base and horrible that is? It should bring us really back to what Matthew 15 said, where Jesus talked about it's not what's outside that makes you unclean, it's the heart from where all these impurities come from. These men are trying so hard to maintain the external appearance of cleanliness that they neglect the wretchedness of their own hearts all the time. This is why back in Matthew 23, Jesus said, you're like cups that are filthy on the inside. You're like tombs that are whitewashed and beautiful on the outside, but inside you are full of, full of dead men's rotting corpses. So, they bring him, but they won't come in. And since they won't come in, Pilate goes out to them. Verse 29, he goes outside to them and he says, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate says, What has he done? They say, Don't worry about it. If he wasn't a bad guy, we wouldn't have wasted your time. We're not actually here for a judgment. Just trust us on this one and do what we need you to do. Well, Pilate really wants to move this along. He has no interest in a prolonged trial. It's probably early in the morning. He's more interested in keeping the peace and maybe even getting more sleep. And so he said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. If this is a matter that you don't even want to bring to me for a full disclosure, then go ahead and deal with it and let's be done with it. But they say it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And that's really interesting. Pilate says, go ahead and take care of it. Do whatever you need to. And the Jews say, but we can't put anyone to death. Not that they haven't tried. But what would happen if the Jews were to put him to death? Pilate essentially gives them permission. He says, do whatever you want. He wouldn't care. If they had taken and done what they needed to do with Jesus, it is much more likely that Pilate would gloss over and ignore that rather than to start some significant interaction with the Jews, especially during a feast time. But why is it that he can't die at their hand? Well, what's the prescription for, death, for blasphemy? It's death. And what do they do with blasphemers? They stone them. They already picked up stones to do it once in Jesus' ministry. They're going to do it to Stephen in the book of Acts. They attempt to stone Paul for blasphemy. And sometimes we think, well, what's the big deal? If Jesus dies, he dies, and that's all there is to it. But no, you see that every bit and every detail of this is just rich with prophetic significance. If Jesus dies by stoning, you lose the prophetic promises that we see in Psalm 22. And even as far back into the Torah, the law that speaks of someone who is going to be lifted up. None of this is by accident. Well, they can't kill him. They need Pilate to do it. So they continue to accuse him. Luke's gospel tells us kind of what they say in Luke 23. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. Luke 23, verse 2 says, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding him to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They say he's misleading the nation. Well, again, irony of ironies. Who is misleading the nation? They are. They say he forbids us to pay taxes to Caesar. What did Jesus say about taxes? Render to Caesar. What is Caesar? Pay your taxes. But that last one, that last one, there's something there. He claims to be the Christ, the king, and that's what is behind Pilate's question to Jesus that's recorded in Matthew is, are you a king? 
In Matthew, he says, you've said so yourself. He gives almost the exact same answer that when Caiaphas asks him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And just like when Caiaphas asked that, Jesus said, yes, and let me tell you exactly what that means. If you look at John 18, verse 34, after, he says, after Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Look at what Jesus answers. Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? Pilate, did you come up with this on your own? Or is this something you've heard from others? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate, if this was about force, if this was about numbers, if this was about an earthly kingdom like you are familiar with, if this was about the kind of kingdom that you are worried about maintaining, you and I would have a very different interaction. And isn't that consistent with what we've seen from Jesus even in the garden? Peter, put the sword away. If this was about strength, I have more than would ever be necessary to deal with this. Pilate, if this was about the kind of kingdom that you're thinking of, this would look very, very different. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate, my kingdom is unlike anything you've known or experienced. I am a king. I'm telling the truth. And those people, my people, those who are my kingdom citizens, know the truth that I'm speaking. And Pilate asks that critical question, well, then what is truth? The world around us still resoundingly echoes that question. What is truth and can we even know it? And Pilate is speaking to the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is speaking to the characterization, to the embodiment of truth. And flip back to Matthew for me. That, all of that is behind that question, are you the king of the Jews? All of that is behind that answer of Jesus saying that, that you have said so. And the rest of this encounter serves to amaze Pilate. He doesn't have any box to put this in. This is unlike anything he has ever seen. Because Pilate's initial judgment, that again, Matthew doesn't record, is that there's nothing wrong. That he doesn't find anything worthy of condemnation here. He doesn't see Jesus as a threat, but look at verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. As Pilate's initial declaration is, I don't see what the big deal is here. There's nothing worth me doing anything about. The people begin to shout out, you have to do something about this. The accusations begin to fly. It's everything that he would have heard that during that overnight trial, plus anything else they could think of that would enrage Pilate, that would make something stick. Uh, because things are coming to a head one way or another. Either they're going to get what they want and Jesus is done away with, or Jesus is set free and they look really, really foolish. And in the face of all of these things, Jesus says nothing. He gave no answer. Again, he is not obligated to answer to anything that they've said. All of these false accusations don't demand an answer. Under the law, under any rational way of thinking, he, Jesus is not going to respond to their accusations. He's not going to revile when he's reviled. He's not going to return insult for insult. Instead, he's resolute. He's absolutely silent. And then Pilate says to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? 
But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Pilate, Jesus, do you not hear this? Again, from Pilate's perspective, this makes no sense. Because what do guilty people do when they're accused? They defend themselves. And what do people do when they're wrongly accused? They really defend themselves. And if their life is on the line, they passionately defend themselves. Everybody knows where this is headed. Everybody knows what could come about if the Jewish leaders get their way. And every expectation is that if Jesus is like everyone else, then why is he not responding like everyone else? Well, we know because he's already committed to obey the will of the Father perfectly. We know that because this was written prophetically 700 years before that he would remain silent. We know that this is God's plan working out, but this does not make sense in the minds of these mortal men. But in all these accusations, again, we, we kind of depart from this a little bit, as they are shouting out these accusations, that he's been teaching these things, that he's been spreading this sedition from Galilee all the way to here. Pilate hears, oh, Galilee. He picks up on something. Because remember, Pilate is a man looking for a way out. Pilate is a man looking for a way to make this go away, or at least have it dealt with where it doesn't come back to him. And as soon as he hears Galilee, he thinks Herod. Not Herod the Great, who ruled over all of Israel, but Herod Antipas, one of his sons. We talked about this when we talked about the death of John the Baptist. Herod's family was messed up. And when Herod died, the territory that he ruled over was broken up. And Herod Antipas ruled over that area of Galilee. This is the one that had John the Baptist put to death from that most appropriate of all Mother's Day sermons a couple years ago. A mother was involved. I'm going to stand on that. And Herod was eager to meet Jesus. Luke's gospel records this interaction where Herod is thrilled to see Jesus. He is in town for the Passover. He is there for the festivities. He has been partying with his entourage. And now Jesus is brought to Herod. And Herod thinks that now the party favor has arrived. And he wants to see Jesus do a trick. That's all it boils down to. Herod wants to see Jesus do some miracle by form of entertainment. Jesus' miracles were never for the entertainment of the crowds. Jesus' miracles consistently pointed to the truth of what he said and the truth of who he was. And Herod is not interested, and Jesus is not interested in being entertainment for that evening, and Jesus says nothing. And eventually Herod gets bored and tired and frustrated, and so they put a gorgeous robe on Jesus, and they mock him, and they send him back to Pilate. And in the sanctified imagination, I would love to see Pilate's face when he sees Jesus coming back. Are you kidding me? I cannot get rid of this guy. This will not go away. So Pilate is stuck again. The people will not accept that he has done nothing wrong. Herod will not deal with him. And now he's right back before Pilate. But then Pilate has another idea. There's another way that maybe this goes away. Pilate is going to propose a trade. From the trial, now there's a trade that we're going to think through. And this trade is based, first of all, on a custom. Look at verse 15. Now at the feast, that is at the Passover, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. In order to maintain some goodwill among a conquered people, especially a conquered people that you have repeatedly stepped on the toes of, especially a conquered people that are gathered together by the hundreds of thousands in a city that is almost always ripe for rebellion, at the feast, 
he would release to them a prisoner that they wanted, and that would kind of placate the crowd. There's some evidence that this happened at a few places across the Roman Empire, but Pilate ties this to the Feast of the Passover. And so every year, he will release for them the prisoner of their choosing. And this introduces another man, a very particular criminal, in verse 16. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. A couple of things. Understand that in this culture, uh, there's no sense where you served a prison term of 10, 15, 20 years. That's not how it worked. There were crimes that you were captured for, and typically they either led to severe physical punishment, uh, slavery and bondage, or death. Now, you might be in prison awaiting one of those outcomes or awaiting the trial, but uh, it's not like you got sent away for 30 years in San Quentin or something like that. that that's not what's happening. So uh, this man, Barabbas, is being held waiting for his sentence not to be decided, but to be served. He's a notorious prisoner. John says he's a rebel. Mark and Luke say that he was an insurrectionist and a murderer. This is not a good man. This is not a man who is simply misunderstood and oppressed by Rome. This is a violent rebel and a threat. In other words, this is the kind of man that any sane society does not seem eager to have running free. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Who do you want? Do you want a murderer or do you want the Messiah? Everybody close your eyes, please, for me. We're going to pray for a moment. Lord, you are good. Lord, you are sovereign. And Lord, you are in control. We ask that you would be with our brother right now. Lord, we ask for comfort, for peace. Lord, we pray that your hand would be on him. Lord, we thank you that we know who you are in trials and in the unexpected that is never unexpected to you. Lord, I pray that you would show yourself faithful in powerful and tangible ways even now. Amen. This is a first for me. And rather than do an injustice to the word or be a distraction to what's going on over there, I'm going to ask you to simply take a few moments and pray with those that you came with as we get that situation sorted out. Ted, if you could just throw up the slide for me, the welcome slide or whatever, that would be great. And uh, we'll come back here as we get things figured. Thank you, guys.
All right, so again, we plan our steps. The Lord orders them and determines how they are going to go. Uh, it appears that he is going to be fine. For those of you that are watching online, um, just a medical issue that I don't have all the details of and wouldn't be at liberty to share if I did. But thank you for praying. Um, we'll update as appropriate, but it appears that it was minor or at least able to be dealt with. So continue to pray. And like I said, we'll update you as appropriate. And now I would ask that you join me in prayer. We will come back into God's word together, but uh, let's pray. Lord, what a good reminder that you are not absent in anything. Uh, a good reminder that the church isn't a place or a formula, it's a people. So God, I pray for our brother uh, that you would give the doctors wisdom and care, that this would be extremely minor, and that you would restore him back to our fellowship quickly. God, I pray for peace and comfort for his wife. Uh, thank you for the many in our body who you've gifted and equipped to deal with medical situations, Lord. Thank you for the fact that as a good and mighty God, you've shown us in fascinating ways how our bodies work. Lord, remind us that our lives belong to you every moment and every day. Lord, thank you for the ability to work through things as a church family, to be together for things like this. And I pray that we love each other really, really well. And Lord, as we continue to study your word, I pray that you would, again, draw us back to the truth of who you are so that we can be equipped to deal with life's unexpected things, knowing that nothing is unexpected or out of your control. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So the choice has been offered, the notorious murderer or the Messiah. And again, we have to remember that from Pilate's understanding, this is a no-brainer. From Pilate's perspective and from Pilate's point of view, this is an easy choice because Pilate understands some very important things. Pilate understands, first of all, that Jesus is not a threat. Pilate understands that even Herod didn't find anything in him worth condemning. Pilate understands that the people want to punish someone, that this is coming to the point where they need something to happen. And Matthew tells us that Pilate actually understands a deeper aspect, and that's their motives. Because verse 18 says, For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Pilate understands that these are jealous men. They are jealous of Jesus standing with the people. They are jealous of Jesus' wisdom. They are jealous of his popularity. They are infuriated by the fact that he continues to prove that they are foolish and he has just wisdom and composure throughout all of this. And then Matthew tells us something that the other gospel accounts don't. Look at verse 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And that's one of those little phrases that I kind of wish we knew more about. What was the dream like? What did, what did Pilate's wife follow up with this? We don't know. We simply know that from another source, we have this testimony that Jesus is innocent. 
the religious leaders tried Jesus and found nothing wrong with him. They had to bring in testimony and barely cobble together two witness statements to condemn him. Their trial proved his innocence. Judas said that he was innocent. Pilate has found him innocent. Herod has found him innocent. Now Pilate's wife says this man is innocent, that he is righteous. This is so intentional on the part of Matthew. The cross is fixed in our minds as it should be. We know where this is all going. We know the outcome. We know the reasons. But embedded into this every single week, several times a week, has been the fact that the clear testimony, both in public and in private, is that this man is absolutely innocent. And you do not condemn the innocent. It is a tragedy to wrongly condemn an innocent man. And it is a moral outrage when you do it on purpose. So at this point, Pilate has presented his choice. And in his mind, clearly, it has to be Jesus who's released rather than Barabbas. This is where the will of the crowd comes in. Look at verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. So now there's this crowd presented as the day is moving on. A crowd is gathering. And as often as you've heard this preached, you've probably heard it preached that the fickle crowd that cheered him on Sunday now condemns him on Good Friday. And there might have been people involved in both. But remember that those are very, very different things. That crowd at that triumphal entry was tens, more likely hundreds of thousands of people. The city of Jerusalem going out to meet him. The pilgrims coming from Galilee and all over up that road into Jerusalem joining him. The people from Bethany and the surrounding towns who have heard of Lazarus and him being raised from the dead. This huge conglomeration of people just filled with messianic expectations. And all the way through the week you see that the common people are hanging on every word that Jesus says. You see the fear from the religious leaders because they know what the crowd will do. It is not all of a sudden sometime over Thursday night they're changed their mind. This is an intentional crowd gathered up to come to a very particular conclusion. The religious leaders are intentionally stirring dissension. And this is not a place where hundreds of thousands would gather. This is a relatively smaller setting, but this is a crowd that has been stirred to come to the right answer, at least from the perspective of the religious leaders. So the governor says, who do you want me to release? And they say, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus who is called Christ? It's like he's having trouble hearing, understanding what he's hearing. And they shout out, let him be crucified. The Jewish leaders and the Jewish crowd are now crying out for the most violent, the most painful, the most humiliating death that the Roman system could come up with. They're betraying one of their own. And Pilate is exasperated. Uh, exasperated enough to say, uh, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. He's not sent to the cross because he's a political threat. He's not sent to the cross because he's a rebel or a revolutionary. Rome knew what a threat looked like. Rome dealt with the threat of a threat in a harsh way. Jesus hasn't done anything worthy of death. Pilate knows it. But the crowds are 
ready for blood. Now the religious leaders are going to get what they want. They don't want Pilate's reasoning. They don't actually want his justice. They don't actually want his judgment. They simply want him to do what they cannot do. So they shout, let him be crucified. And to this, Pilate finally makes the ultimate concession. He gives in to what they demand. Look at verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. Pilate's been trying to get through this situation and somehow satisfy everyone. Pilate has been trying to maneuver through this and placate the crowd and maintain peace, even appealing to Herod, who was not a friend of his before, but from this day forward, they got along much better. But he sees that he's getting nowhere, not just that he's getting nowhere, he's actually losing control of this situation. This is going from a trial into a riot very, very quickly, and a riot is the one thing that nobody wants. A riot means a violent response. A riot means dead Jews and very likely Pilate losing his place. And so he washes his hands of it and says, see to it yourself. Now, again, that should ring fairly familiar because how do the religious leaders respond to Judas's claims? What is that to us? You see to it yourself. Pilate washes his hands and says he's innocent of this man's blood. He, he's not. He can't be. You don't simply wash your hands of the Messiah and let it go. But we saw it last week, and we saw it really all the way through this, that there is no one innocent of this. That to knowingly condemn and hand over an innocent man to death, you cannot absolve yourself of that guilt simply by washing your hands of it. The only thing we see through all of this where Peter is guilty and Judas is guilty and the religious leaders are guilty and Pilate is guilty and Herod is guilty and the crowd there is guilty. The only shining, brilliant obedience in this is Jesus Christ who just stands out all the more. And so Pilate says he washes his hands and is shallow and evasive and empty as that claim is. It really pales in comparison to what the people say. Verse 25 And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. That is a chilling statement. May the blood of an innocent man be on our hands. May the blood of the king be on our hands. May the blood of the very Son of God be on us and on our children. Of course, they don't hold to any of those things, but what a sobering statement. May this man's blood not only be on me, but may any condemnation come on my children. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. The murdering rebel is set free, and the silent Savior is scourged and handed over to death. And the cross is is brutal. It is difficult to work through that narrative. But the prelude to the cross is no better. Uh, Pilate scourged Jesus, and that works through very, very quickly, but that is a terrifying reality. Uh, The scourge is a whip and the multiple leather straps would have been woven together with bits of bone, shards of pottery, pieces of metal, anything to make it more than just a whip. Uh, Those that carried out these punishments prided themselves on how much damage they could cause, even cutting all the way to the bone on these. You have to remember that as Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews, what he sees is not anything that looks like a king. 
a man who has already had his clothes stained with blood and sweat from his time in the garden, a man whose face was beaten, head was spit on from his trial with the Jews, a king now beaten nearly likely to the point of death. This was so violent. And in the middle of this terrible scene of violence and injustice, we're reminded that none of it is by accident. That's why we read Isaiah 53 this morning. The idea that he was crushed for our iniquities. That he's pierced for our transgressions, that by his wounds we are healed. And so when it comes right down to it, at the end of the day, we have to talk about the real exchange here. The people were presented with a choice. Here's Jesus, the Christ, the King of the Jews, someone that no one can find any fault in, no matter how hard they've tried. A man who has healed the sick, fed the hungry crowds, ministered to the poor and the needy. A man who has always spoken the truth. A man who has done the miraculous and the absolutely unexplainable. A man who has promised a kingdom to anyone who would only come to the Father, but through him. And here's Barabbas. A rebel, murderer, a man willing to accomplish, to kill if it meant accomplishing his means. And they cry out for Barabbas. And in that moment, Pilate judges Jesus as being innocent but impotent. As having done no wrong, but as having no ability to do anything about it. But that's not the exchange that mattered on that day. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On that Good Friday, before these people, an exchange was made. But it was so much more than a murderer for this Jesus who was called Christ. It was the substitution of the righteous for the unrighteous. It was the perfectly innocent handed over for everyone who was guilty. This is where you move into this And you begin to see the reality that ought to weigh rightly on us. Because it is easy to say, well, Peter messed up and in his weakness he runs into the darkness. Judas messed up and in his failure he abandoned the Christ. Pilate messed up and in his weakness, in his fear, in his anger, in his hatred, he rendered the wrong decision. The crowds messed up and in their bloodluster, in the manipulation of the religious leaders, they traded Barabbas for Christ, but at some point in all of this, as Pilate talks to Jesus, he says, Don't you know that I have the power to free you or to kill you? I have the power to put an end to this or to put an end to you. And Jesus says, No, you don't. You don't have any power, any authority except that which is given to you from above. None of this is happening outside of my control. And here's the reality. That the injustice is not in Peter or Judas or the religious leaders or Pilate. The injustice that matters for this exchange is here and it's in me. 
Because you want to talk about who the unrighteous is, who the wicked is, who the failure is. The gospel does not point the finger out there at a fallen world. The gospel tells me that the primary failure is here and it's in me. It's in my own sinful heart that has been given life and breath by the God of all things and is consistently and constantly chosen to walk my own way. To take what he says is good and right and pure and exchange that for my own lusts, my own wants, my own desires, my own priorities, and my own purposes. And the gospel says that on this day, an exchange was made, all of his goodness for all of my failure. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf. That Christ was treated in my place. That in this trial, it should have been me. My failures exposed. The only difference would be if I was on trial, there would be any number of reasons to find me guilty, worthy of death. But the innocent stood in our place. That is the exchange. That is the heart of this story. Not Barabbas for Jesus, but Jesus for me. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, so that in Him taking my sin, I might for some reason... God in His love and mercy would place His righteousness onto me. <laughs> we hear it so commonly now that God loves you just the way you are. Do you know why God accepts any of us? It's not because He's just such a kind uncle that can forgive all of our little things. He loves His people because He sees them through the lens of the righteousness of Christ. We are acceptable because we have a righteousness that is completely foreign to our nature put upon us. And that happened because of this exchange. Because the Son was willing to die in my place. So here are the only two reflections and responses for today. First of all, what's the verdict? Because that still stands. That is still the question that rings throughout all of history. What am I to do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? Because here is the choice. It is this Jesus or everything else. And this Jesus promised trouble in this life. He promised enmity with the world. He promised hardship. He promised pain, but he promised an eternity greater. He promised the Holy Spirit to walk with us through those times, to be with us even through the valley of the shadow of death. He promised to equip us to be obedient in any and every circumstance. He promised peace, not like the world gives you, but a peace that only he can bring. He promised comfort in heartbreak. He promised strength in weakness. And at the end of all of it, he promised life, eternal life with him. And on the other side of that balance, you have everything else, anything that you want to fill in, your job, your career, your family, your relationships, your peace, your comfort, your agenda, your anything. But here's the best that we can say about that. The best that anything on this side can do is last as long as you do and then it's gone. Because the best that you can hope for, the best that you can bring to the table, the best that I can plan for this life only lasts as long as this life. And I don't even know how long that's going to be. It is temporary and fleeting and failing at best. And there is nothing eternal. Why? Why would we trade the eternal for the temporary simply for fleeting comfort? 
And so if you have never dealt with that question, what will you do with this Jesus? That's on the table today, and there is no neutral response. Jesus is a watershed of human history. You will fall to one side or the other. You cannot delay the decision because every day that you delay is moving toward what you would want. What will you do with this Jesus? And for those of us, and it's probably the vast majority of us who have said, yes, I surrender to Christ, then we need to make that decision every day. What is it worth to continue to follow him? Because that Jesus still speaks to me in the times when I'm frustrated, in the times when I'm angry, in the times when I'm sad and heartbroken and crushed with things that I don't think somehow he thought of. What will I do with that Jesus? And is it worth obedience in that moment? How I wish I could answer that it always is to me. But the reality is that every time I sin, every time I choose to go my own way, to do my own thing, I have evaluated this Jesus and I have said, in this moment, you're not worth it. Now, we don't talk like that. But we live like that. Jesus is worth it. Seniors who are going out into the world, Jesus is worth it. Whether it makes you different, whether it makes you alone, whether it costs you everything, even your very life, he is worth it. Find people that will remind you that he is worth it, and we could probably all use that. Find people to remind us that the exchange is worth it. And the second thing, what is truth? Pilate asked that question, and the world has no answer. Truth is subjective. Truth is relative. Truth is fluid and based on time, circumstance, feelings, emotions, needs, desires. Friends, Jesus says differently. Jesus says, I am the truth. Not only is there truth, but the truth is knowable and the truth is consistent and constant. God has given us his word that is truth. And the world says that's constricting and foolish and bigoted, it is so freeing to know that I don't have to come into every situation and try to define what is best, but that God has done that. And I am free then to live in, in the beauty of obedience. You might be going through any number of a hundred different things and you're wondering, is there a truth in the middle of all of this? I can tell you joyfully and confidently that there is. And we say the truth sets us free. It's so true. Do you find the truth freeing? Yeah, except when it steps on my toes, but it, isn't that so much better? When the truth of God's word throws a bar up between me and disaster, isn't that better? Isn't it freeing to know that the truth reveals the goodness of God, the mercy of God to a ruined sinner like me? Man, let's pray. Lord, another Sunday that we couldn't expect or anticipate, we plan and we carry out and we prepare and, and then you do what only you can do and that is order the universe. Lord, we're reminded that every step from the manger to the cross was ordained and walked in perfect obedience. That salvation wasn't a last-minute plan, but that before Adam breathed his first breath, the Savior was in place for sinful men. Lord, remind us of the exchange, the perfect for the imperfect. Lord, 
kill in us the desire to seek our own. Put to death the need to have our rights upheld. Lord, give us the freedom of surrendering to your will, of being able to entrust ourselves to you, the holy God who always gets it right. Lord, I pray that we would be a people again who tell people about this, who talk about the fact that Christ came to save sinners, that the godly, the God man himself died for the ungodly. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You didn't wait for us to be worthy because we never would have been. You didn't wait for us to pursue you with all of our hearts because we never would have. But you rescued us when there was nothing in us worth rescuing. What a remarkable, saving God you are. What other name has that kind of power? What other beauty shows that kind of radiant glory? What other majesty commands our praises? Only you. Only our holy God. Amen.